Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Fruit Loops, episode 145. Staying alive yeah. out here in these streets. Buiti <laughs> binafi, bienvenidos, bitches, and thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cis, able-bodied white dudes. What? No, I'm telling you, there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because, wait a minute, this can't be right. The news <laughs> is racist. <laughs> Allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a Black Latinx woman. And I'm Beth. And I just happen to be white. It is not her fault. <laughs> We're not journalists, despite what NBC says. Yeah, NBC. <laughs> Investigators or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com. Or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Yes. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. Yeah. So, are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Gregory Vincent Green, a black man who murdered his wife and unborn child. He then went to jail, got out, and then killed his second family. Two times, y'all. Two times, yeah. And this subject was suggested to us by Nakia and Uni. Thank y'all so much. Yeah. <laughs> 
we get into it, how are you doing? I'm good. So at this time, as we are recording, you'll hear this like a week or so later. <laughs> We're getting ready for Christmas. Yeah. And uh, a few glorious days off from work. So Hell you yeah. got like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> also, this is the last episode we'll be posting for 2021. So we want to take this opportunity to say that we hope y'all have a happy new year. Yes. Happiest of new years. We will see you right back here in January. Are we coming back in February? Well, <laughs> we're taking a break in January, so we're coming back in February, but we'll have some things for you to listen to in January. No worries. Yes, yeah, some little treats, so um, yeah. your feeds will not be empty. Uh, now we're going to get into some listener. Hello, heh, heh. What is my button? Letters. <laughs> Hello, angels. Merry Hello. Christmas. Merry <laughs> Christmas. What's in the bag, Beth? Well, I wanted to say thanks to SBS Chu, Beast Mode GT, and CJ from Beyond the Rainbow, yes. whose podcast we've shouted out before. Uh, anyway, thank you all for your five-star reviews. Thank you. Gracias. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so we got some uh, new uh, supporters um, in the form of Gwyneth P., uh, Tenacia C., Jillian, uh, sorry, I forgot to put your uh, last initial, but Jillian, you know who you are, and Kim <laughs> J. Uh, so mm -hmm. here are your tunes. Uh, first of all, thank you for supporting our show, Becoming Patrons and Patreons. Yeah. Uh, Hip Hop Air Horns. Because I'm a for forgetful bitch, so I had to do that before <laughs> I forget. I to do it first. Uh, yes. <laughs> I'm the happiest Gwyneth P. Ho, ho, ho. He, he, he. Someone <laughs> came and they found me, took me home with them. Oh, Gwyneth, Gwyneth P. He, he. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you. Uh, this is for Tenacia C. All I want for Christmas is Tenacia C, my Tenacia C, Tenacia C. Gee, if I could only have Tenacia C, then I could wish you a Merry Christmas. <laughs> I winged it. I'm sorry. Okay. This one is for Jillian. This Christmas, the fireside is blazing bright. And we're murdering through the night. And Jillian will be a very special patron for me. Whoa, whoa, yeah. <laughs> okay. Kim J, Kim J, Kim J's here. Time for toys and time for cheer. We've been good, but we can't last. Hurry, true crime, hurry fast. Want a plane that loops the loop? Me, I got a show to do. We can hardly stand the wait. Please, true crime, don't be late. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> thank you all so much. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break and we're going to get into the story when we come back. Mm -hmm. 
I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. People don't always realize that physical symptoms like headaches, teeth grinding, and even digestive issues can be indicators of stress. And let's not forget about doom scrolling, sleeping too little, sleeping too much, under eating, and overeating. Okay, so the copy here says to talk about my experience with stress. Oh boy, <laughs> do you have an hour? Uh, where do I begin? <laughs> Work, bills, life, family. I could go podcast. on for a very, yeah, <laughs> podcast, a very long time. And I actually do this in therapy, which is so helpful for me so I can manage, deal, and get through it. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways and in a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time. Here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color. Listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com fruit. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash fruit. All right, guys, it's it's time for me to come clean. It's okay. it's time for me to tell the truth. Right. It's time for me to spill the beans. Okay. It's time <laughs> to fess up. It's time to keep it a buck. Keep it 100. Are you going to get to it? Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. So sometimes after dark, I sneak away and play Best Fiends. Others may wonder about my mysterious disappearances. They say, who does she think she is? David Blaine? David Copperfield? I say none of the above. In fact, I'm having so much fun playing Best Fiends. Ever heard? 
heard of it? Why, yes, I have. (laughs) I love Best Fiends. I love collecting the little monsters when you play so I can level up my fiends. Also, I love going in for the super long matches to free up the board and beat levels. I am happy to report that I am on level 440. That's amazing. (laughs) Okay, friend, I see you flexing over there. (laughs) Now, Best Fiends is a free-to-download mobile puzzle game with thousands of exciting new levels for new adventures and challenges every time you play. I am on level 304. Beth, tell them about the offline play. Yes, of course. (laughs) There is offline play, so you don't even need Wi-Fi or the internet. Oh, good. So download your new favorite getaway, Best Fiends, for free today on the App Store or Google Play. You'll even get $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. And we're back. Remind us, Beth. Who is our subject today? Today we're talking about Gregory Vincent Green, a black man who murdered his wife and unborn child, went to jail, got out, then did it again. Ah, two times, fool. All right, (laughs) brother. Two times. All right, now we're going to get into some stats. All right, brother Greg was a domestic abuser, murderer, and family annihilator. Uh, He had five victims, four of which were children. Green was born in 1966 in Michigan. Which city? We don't know. Um, By the way, I just uh, learned something about Michigan. Uh, Well, I've said this before. Canada is south of Detroit, right? Uh, Right. And in that journey song. In that journey. (laughs) Yeah, it is weird. Born and raised in South Detroit. There is no South Detroit. (laughs) Nice try, Journey. Anyway... So his crimes took place on July 14th, 1991, after which he was incarcerated for 16 years. And nine years after his release, he did more heinous murders on September 21st, 2016. He was apprehended that same day and has been incarcerated ever since. His victims rest in power and in love, kings and queens, uh, Tanya Clayton Green, Kara Allen was 17, Chadney Allen was 19, Koi Green was five and Kaylee Green was four. So now we're going to get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. The setting is Dearborn Heights, Michigan. Dearborn Heights is a part of the Detroit metropolitan area. Thousands of years before the European invasion, many indigenous tribes lived in what is today the state of Michigan. They included the Ojibwa, Menominee, Chippewa, Miami, Ottawa, Potawatomi, who were part of the Algonquin people, as well as the Wyandot, who were from the Iroquoian people and lived in the area of present-day Detroit. Born and raised in South Detroit. <laughs> Record scratch. Uh, so the first permanent European settlement in Michigan was founded in 1668 at Sault Ste. Marie. Uh, French. Okay. Uh, It is estimated that the native population at the time was 15,000. The French built several trading posts, forts, and villages in Michigan during the late 17th century, and Detroit was settled in 1701 by French colonists. Colonists. Murderers, (laughs) rapists, pillagers, thieves. That's what I mean by colonists. During the American Revolutionary War, the British, with the assistance of local tribes, continually attacked American settlements and even conquered Detroit. 
The war ended with the signing of the Treaty of Paris in 1783. The area of Michigan was now controlled by the newly formed United States of America. In 1787, the region became part of the Northwest Territory. In 1805, the land, which is now Michigan, was declared as Michigan Territory. During the War of 1812, British forces from Canada, sorry, Canada, <laughs> that Canada and quickly captured Detroit and Fort Mackinac, giving them a strategic advantage and encouraging Native revolt against the United States. Well, could you blame them? Anyway, American troops retook Detroit in 1813, and Fort Mackinac was returned to the Americans at the end of the war in 1815. After their defeat in the War of 1812, the tribes were forced to sell all of their land claims to the U.S. government. In the 1820s, the U.S. government assigned Indian agents to work with the tribes, including arranging land sessions and relocation. They forced most of the Native Americans to relocate from Michigan to reservations further west. Yeah, it's a pretty um, disgusting part of American history. history. We cannot forget that uh, this nation was built on thievery and unpaid land and unpaid labor. And murder. And murder and rape and billaging and all the things. Um, Can we add those words to our national anthem? I, can we rewrite it? I don't know. Anyway, slavery was legal in the territory that would become Michigan until the adoption of the Northwest Ordinance in 1787, and captive indigenous and African people were exploited in the early development of Detroit. But when Michigan adopted its first state constitution in 1835, slavery was prohibited. Before the Civil War, many Michigan citizens helped enslaved people escape from the South via the Underground Railroad. Detroit was the last stop in a long journey for fugitive slaves before crossing the river to Canada and freedom. Although it was one of the largest depots along the network, there were other stations and safe refuges in the state. An estimated 200 Underground Railroad stops were discovered in Michigan between 1820 and 1865. In Detroit, you can visit the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History, one of the world's largest permanent exhibits on African American culture. And the Underground Railroad Living Museum Flight to Freedom Tour, a storytelling reenactment of the original Underground Railroad passage that operated between 1840 and 1863. Um, I actually, there is a Amazon Prime show called Underground, and it is horrific, but yeah. uh, b- because of how accurate it is right. um, and how brutal um, some of the scenes are. But yeah. what um, I think people forget is that there were a lot of um, well-meaning white folks. Who, the, the Underground Railroad wouldn't have worked without white allies. Yeah. And um, it was very risky. I mean, they could be fined, put in prison, or killed yeah. for helping any escaped um, fugitive, or runaway fugitive slave. slave. People, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, during the Civil War, Michigan supplied a large number of Union troops and several generals. More than 90,000 Michigan men, nearly a quarter of the state's male population in 1860, served in the war on the side of the Union. After the war, the local economy became more varied and began to prosper. The Upper Peninsula proved to be a rich source of lumber, 
iron, and copper. Michigan led the nation in lumber production from the 1850s to the 1800s. Railroads became a major engine of growth in Michigan, with Detroit the chief hub. During the 1870s, the lumber industry, dairy, farming, and industry grew rapidly in the state, and Michigan's population doubled between 1870 and 1890. That's crazy. Yeah. Detroit became the automobile capital of the world. Hello. After Henry Ford, who was born in Michigan, established the Ford Motor Company in Detroit and introduced the assembly line in 1914. The auto industry in Detroit, which is often called Motor City or Motown, Mm. continued to be important and the population grew dramatically between 1850 and 1950. Before World War I, Detroit had about 4,000 Black people, about 1% of its population. The first major period of Black growth occurred from 1910 to 1930 during the Great Migration of the early 20th century. And we've talked about this before. This was a period of economic expansion in the auto industry, and Black folks were attracted to Detroit because of the potential for employment. From 1910 to 1930, the Black population of Detroit increased from under 6,000 to over 120,000. Wow. As the city developed as the fourth largest in the country. During the Great Depression, the population stagnated, but during World War II, the demand for labor grew with the expansion of the war industries. Sections of the auto industry were converted to wartime production of the arsenal and vehicles needed for war. And a new wave of Black people migrated from the South during the Second Great Migration. Stimulated by industrial development in Detroit, expansion pushed outward, and in 1927, Ford moved his auto production to a massive industrial complex he had built along the banks of the River Rouge in Dearborn, Michigan. Dearborn was established as a city out of Dearborn Township, which had been formed in 1833. In the 1920s and 1930s, African-Americans working in Henry Ford's Dearborn factories settled in Inkster as it was closer to their work than Detroit, and they were not allowed to live in Dearborn. According to James W. Lowen, author of Sundown Towns, many of Dearborn's residents, quote, took pride in saying the sun never set on a Negro in Dearborn, unquote. Mm, Wow. Yeah. Orville Hubbard, the segregationist mayor of Dearborn from 1942 to 1978, Jesus fucking Christ, said, quote, as far as he was concerned, it was against the law for a Negro to live in his suburb, unquote. Yikes. Uh, And for those of you listening who don't know what a sundown town is, it's a town where um, black people were not allowed to exist beyond the sun setting. So if you were in... come into town to clean and stuff, but Uh then they had to leave. Then they had to leave. And by the way, this is not ancient history. This is barely a generation ago. This guy said this. I mean, he was the mayor of Dearborn until 1978. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, gross. yes. Basura. Uh, so, Basura. Thank you, my friend. Uh, so, Dearborn <laughs> Heights, that's why she's my favorite white lady. Dearborn <laughs> Heights was also formed out of Dearborn Township and a quarter mile connecting strip of land from the village of Inkster. Inkster, a predominantly black community, filed suit claiming that the shape of Dearborn Heights reflected a racial gerrymander. The Michigan Supreme Court dismissed the lawsuit. Why? Of they did. Why you do 
do that. Yeah. What for? Uh, are you blind? As a result, Dearborn Heights is a very white, approximately 84% of the population in that town is white. Yeah, yeah. The population of Detroit has declined steadily since the mid-1950s due to white flight and loss of industry. Loss of jobs in the auto industry brought on new economic hardship and social problems. Detroit continued to suffer economically, and by the mid-1990s, its population had fallen to half of its peak in the 1950s. By the early 21st century, some four-fifths of the population was Black. Yeah, Detroit is very Very Black. black. Very Black. But Detroit is coming back. So not only are there Black people there... But there are also more economic opportunities for the city to rebuild, which people say is a good thing. Yeah. So decades of city mismanagement resulted in Detroit filing for bankruptcy in 2013, the largest claim ever filed for a U.S. city with debt estimated at $19 billion. Billion, billion with a B. Yeah. Now, yeah, since that's uh, it is wild. Since Detroit emerged from bankruptcy, there has been major private investment and development in Detroit, but the city still faces a lot of challenges. Detroit, the little city that could. Uh, I don't know if it's that little. Though. I've never been. Uh, yeah. yeah, but I want to see that museum that we talked about. Yeah. Too. You know yeah. what? We should do a live show there. We should We should go to Detroit. <laughs> yeah. Bone and Raisin, South Detroit. <laughs> Regret scratch. Uh, so now we're going to get into Brother Greg, Gregory Green's early life. What do you got for us, Beth? Gregory Vincent Green was born on December 10th, 1966. Unfortunately, we couldn't find anything about his early life, except that his parents' names are Woodrow and Tommy Green, and he had at least one sister. His family was reportedly religious and regularly attended church. We don't know this for sure, but I suspect he was a great migration baby. That it is likely that his parents were part of the Great Migration and moved to Detroit for all those economic opportunities that we talked about. Um, As far as we can tell, his mom, Tommy, was born in 1924 in Georgia. Oh, wait, it's confirmed. She is part of the Great Migration. (laughs) And she was about 41 when Gregory was born. Uh, His dad may have been born that same year. And this means that they lived through the Depression and World War II. Yeah, and that's like my parents who were also older when I was born. Ah. But uh, being black, they also lived through a lot of other horrific things. Yeah. And uh, as we talked about, they probably migrated to Michigan as part of the Great Migration and fleeing from uh, terrorism. Absolutely. Uh, And if we were to guess, Gregory Green probably had a few siblings and he may have been the youngest, but we don't know for sure. This is speculation crossed with a little Google sleuthing, which didn't really answer any questions for certain. Thanks, yeah. Internet. So <laughs> now we're going to get into the timeline. Hit it, Beth. In July of 1989, Gregory Green married a woman named Tanya Clayton Green, who had two daughters from a previous relationship. Tanya has been described by friends as fun-loving, kind, and big-hearted. I thought her name was La Tanya, but everybody called her Tanya. Tan- that could oh, also maybe. be I don't an know. internet error. Uh, yeah. I'm not a real journalist, so I can't say for sure. <laughs> so... Marilyn Scales, who was a close friend with Tanya, uh, said her friend told her she was trying to leave her husband. She said, quote, Tanya called me and said Gregory started acting differently and she didn't know if he was on drugs or, or something, but he just switched and changed, unquote. 
1991, after two years of marriage, Tanya was six months pregnant with their first child, but friends reported she was planning on leaving Green, who had become jealous, controlling, and violent. The last time that Marilyn spoke with her, Tanya told her, quote, she was going to church and then she was going home to pack her clothes, unquote. On July 14th, 1991, Gregory Green attacked Tanya, stabbing her in the face and chest with a steak knife. He stabbed her 10 times, killing her and their unborn child. She was stabbed in the neck, cheek, chest, and back. Both of her lungs were punctured. Then he called 911 and waited for the police to come. He opened the door for them when they arrived, telling them, quote, I stabbed her. She's in the kitchen, unquote. He then showed detectives where to find the murder weapon, which he'd put in the refrigerator. I wonder why he did that. I don't know. Interesting move. Uh, Now, Tanya was pronounced dead at Grace Hospital. Tanya's two young children, ages five and eight, were also in the house that day. But it's been reported that they were hiding in a closet and they were thankfully unharmed in the attack. However, the killing left the children without their mother. So unharmed physically, maybe. Yeah. But psychologically, otherwise, no. Yeah. Yeah. At first, Green pleaded insanity and was ordered to undergo a psychiatric examination. His family members and other supporters pleaded with a judge to show him mercy, calling him a remorseful, loving, polite, sincere, respectful, and God-fearing person. His mother, Tommy Lee Green, wrote a judge in 1992 asking for leniency. She wrote, quote, I don't believe Gregory is a threat to society. I don't believe a long sentence will make him any better because he has suffered already and he will continue to suffer the rest of his life, unquote. Green pleaded no contest to second-degree murder and was sentenced to 15 to 25 years in prison. According to the Michigan Department of Corrections, the average sentence for second-degree murder is 26 years, with some receiving sentences as low as five years and others getting life. That's that's ridiculous. None of that makes any sense. None of those numbers yeah. or disparities in sentences yeah. make sense. And we've heard, um, obviously, um, Black men get harsher sentences than the rest of the population. But there's also an issue with these judges and the mood that they are in when they enter these courtrooms. Like they I've heard that they're hungry. They're hungry, (laughs) right. Yeah. Um you had a bad day. Don't don't go before the judge before lunch because it's not gonna be good. You know, uh things like that. And then also um, it seems like a light sentence for the murder of a, a w- person and an unborn baby. Um, yeah. But they were also black. So yes. I wonder if that played a part. Anyway, um, records show that Green's history while incarcerated was good. He followed the rules and stayed out of trouble. His parole eligibility report reads, quote, Excellent, good block reports, good past work history. He is respectful to staff and other prisoners, unquote. Green had only one misconduct while incarcerated. He was given a ticket in 2002 for getting involved in a fistfight over a television. Fred Harris, a civil rights activist and a popular pastor with the Church of the Risen Christ Ministries International in Detroit, advocated hard for Green's release. 
all sinners could gain redemption, he believed. Well, he wrote the, <laughs> he wrote to the Michigan Parole Board in August 2005 saying, quote, Gregory and I were friends before his mishap. Mishap? Uh, I know. And he was incarcerated. <laughs> well, that's not a oopsie. I tripped uh, over myself. And... I, yeah. Uh, I, the knife I, I slipped. And then I put it in the refrigerator. He, so he, <laughs> sorry, I'm going to finish this quote, I promise. He, he was a member of our church. And uh, he goes on to say, I feel he has paid for his unfortunate lack of self-control and the damage he has caused as much as possible and is sorry, unquote. The next year, he wrote again saying, quote, if he was to be released, he would be welcomed as a part of our church community and whatever we could do to help him adjust, we would, unquote. Uh, you could still be a child of God in prison. Uh, yeah. So yeah. he also helped Green's family write letters to the parole board. In November 2006, his parents, Woodrow and Tommy, wrote, quote, We believe Gregory is very sorry for what he did and has gained insight into his behaviors. He has worked hard in prison and he continues to make a positive adjustment, unquote. The couple also indicated that their son would be welcome into their home upon release. You know what I do? don't hear is more i mean maybe they're out there but more letters of remorse or right you know where is his where's the version, remorse where's yeah. his version of i'm sorry or pleading right. you know it's i get it's uh impactful for other people to do it on his behalf but they're telling us he's sorry but i don't see it from him yeah yeah Green's sister, Deidre Borders, wrote a letter dated November 22nd, 2006, telling the parole board about her brother's turn toward faith. Quote, over the years, Greg has become closer to the Lord and reads his word daily. I believe this is what has helped Greg through this difficult and trying time, unquote. Another thing to consider is, you know, his family is writing in, but his family also lost a sister-in-law and a grandchild. Yeah. Um, so Green was denied parole four times for various reasons, but they all centered around the idea that he had not shown remorse for his crime and had not gained adequate insight and he showed a lack of empathy. One parole report dated December 27, 2004, said that he explained his conduct as arising out of the victim's mistreatment of him. Oh, victim blaming alert. Yeah. Problematic. Another parole report in 2006 read in part, quote, he still can't explain his murderous rage. Oddly, he did not utter a word of empathy or remorse, unquote. So, yeah, you were onto something. I'm troubled yeah. by this. I'm a spidey sense. Uh, so, but he completed several cognitive based programs at the prison. He stayed out of trouble. And in 2008, after serving about 16 years in prison for murder, Green was released on parole. He moved back into his parents' house, observed a curfew, and swore not to drink. Green began spending time with Faith Harris, Reverend Harris and his wife Kathleen's daughter. The two had known each other when they were younger and now started dating. The Reverend gave the relationship his blessing, and on December 18th, 2010, Green married Faith Harris. Um, 
I don't want to keep reading. <laughs> But I will. Uh, I just want to. You want to stop now. That's just, it. That's the I end know. of the story. I wish it was. No, because um, I. Uh, so I uh, listened to a podcast about this, and I, and they will there they will be linked in the show notes. But I heard the fact that it was the Reverend's daughter. But I was like, nah, right. nah, that can't be right. Uh, it, it's right. It's right. Yeah. Ah! Yeah. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Get ready for your starring role in a thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes, danger, and romance. That's right. It's June's Journey, and you play June Parker, an amateur detective investigating a series of mysteries. Ooh, you'll put your powers of observation to the test. Sharpen your sleuthing skills, find objects, and claim rewards. The visuals are fire. It's like a party for your eyeballs. <laughs> As you play this thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes with danger and romance in full force. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just need to get away for a while, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. It really is a sweet escape. I like to play when I need a mental pick-me-up. There is a detective in all of us. Find your inner detective. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play.
So Green then became a stepfather to Faith's children, Kara and Chadney, C.J. Allen. Both were wonderful children. Uh, Kara Allen, or Kara Bear, was a member of the school news staff, a varsity football cheerleader, a member of the National Honor Society, wow, and manager of the varsity football team. She dreamed of attending Salem College in North Carolina and becoming a doctor. C.J. Allen graduated from Southfield High School in 2015 and completed a certificate in digital media arts from Spex Howard. He was good at art, and his work was once exhibited in the General Motors building in downtown Detroit. That's amazing. Um, In April of 2010, Green was discharged from parole. Uh, The couple had a daughter, Coy Bailey Green, who was born on October 28, 2010. They lovingly called her Princess Koi as she liked to be the center of attention. She loved dancing, wearing her dresses, and getting her hair done. In November of 2010, the city of Detroit hired Green as a water department helper. Green worked for the water department for about 20 months before being injured on the job July 31st, 2012, when a large bank of dirt fell on his head while he was digging a hole. Uh Uh-oh. The city settled a lawsuit in the incident for $90,000. Green received a little over $75,000, and the rest covered attorney fees and medical bills. Now, despite his injuries, Green was able to work with some restrictions as a dishwasher at Novi Restaurant. Later, he got a job as a driver for LSG Sky Chefs, which provided airline catering at Detroit Metro Airport. On September 4th, 2012, the Green's daughter, Kaylee Olivia Green, was born. Nicknamed Sweet Pea, she loved the water and she loved to sing. Shortly afterwards, Green's mother, Tommy, passed away. The Green home was described as very well kept, and the Greens had no known conflicts with neighbors. They were said to be a normal family, quiet and hardworking. Ronnie Jones, who lived across the street, said the family mostly kept to themselves. Neighbor Karen Radke said she regularly saw the children playing outside with the family's dog. She said she would see Faith as well, but that Green worked long hours and was rarely home. I was just thinking the family kept to themselves. Maybe they just didn't want to talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) Ronnie Jones. I'm just kidding. (laughs) So... Another another neighbor, uh, Terry Strickland, said, quote, they were just quiet. You know, kids seemed always happy. The guy seemed really good, too. I mean, the time when he accidentally hit my car, he was polite. He came and knocked on my door and told me what happened and we worked things out. He seemed like a very good guy, unquote. But all was not well within the green home. Not long after Kaylee was born in February 2013, Faith Green filed for a personal protection order against her husband. In her application, she did not cite any physical assaults by Gregory Green. I wonder about that. Sorry to keep talking and interjecting so much. But, oh, that's okay. Um, you know, as, as a Black woman... Um, sometimes, then welcome to Culture Corner. There is an obligation, sometimes warranted, sometimes not, to protect black men around us. Um, right. and even when they are doing very bad things, um, the fear is whatever the state will do to them will be a gazillion times worse if I say something I shouldn't, right. even though it's the truth. So yeah. I'm part of me is wondering um if, if that was if a that factor. Was a factor. And I think that's probably 
it probably was. Yeah. Yeah. So what she did say was, quote, he's trying to make me leave our home. We're filing for divorce. He's been belligerent, kicking things. He kicked the couch while the baby was sleeping on it, just kicking things, threatening me and saying, if I don't leave, things are going to get ugly. Jumped at me like he was going to attack. This went on for hours, unquote. Unfortunately, the PPO request made no mention of Green's criminal background. Whoa. Uh, And the judge denied the request, concluding there was insufficient evidence. That's weird that a charge like that would not follow him to this present moment. Yeah, I don't know why. Um, I think maybe she would have had to put it in there. Yeah. And maybe she didn't want to because uh, of all the things that you were talking about. I don't know. Yeah. But you would think that would have. For authorities to not somehow be aware. I mean. Find find out about it. Yeah. Yeah. They're watching us right now. How do they not know? (laughs) How do they not know that he killed somebody before? (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know. Um, Doesn't seem like uh, they did due diligence. No, (laughs) ma'am. Faith Green filed for divorce in 2013 and again in 2014. Apparently, Green was never served or they just decided to reconcile. In any case, both were dismissed. But Faith confided in her friend Tanya Ryan that her marriage was in trouble. During the summer of 2016, you remember those days? Uh, Yeah. As was usual for the Green family, they had several summer barbecues with extended families attending. In early September, they had a birthday for Kaylee, who had just turned four. But Faith had filed for divorce again on August 11th, 2016, citing a breakdown in the marriage relationship. Green was served the divorce papers in mid-September 2016. Around the same time, Green went shopping at Home Depot, where he bought a water hose. Seemingly no big deal. Uh, But late in the evening of September 20th, or early in the morning of September 21st, 2016, Green pulled a car alongside the family home and parked it facing the street. After rigging the car with duct tape and the water hose he'd bought at Home Depot, Green placed his little girls in the car. He started the car, and as the exhaust was redirected into the vehicle via the hose, the car filled with carbon monoxide as the children slept. Green then turned to Faith. He gagged, duct-taped, and bound her with zip ties in the basement of their house and then sat her on the basement couch. He then shot her in the foot and slashed her across the face several times with a box cutter. Uh, I don't even I don't even have any words. Now, yeah. Green dragged Kara and CJ out of their beds and down to the basement. CJ was six foot one, but Green had a gun. CJ was forced to tie his sister's wrists with cable ties and bind her ankles and thighs with duct tape. Then Gregory bound CJ similarly and placed him next to his sister on the floor. He then shot them both in the back and then executed them, shooting CJ in the ear and Kara in the top of her head, forcing their mother to watch. Mm. Authorities later said that Green shot the teens in front of their mother to make her suffer because she wanted a divorce and he believed she was cheating on him. Fucking, I mean, that, if, I mean. Fuck you, asshole. Fuck <laughs> you. Yeah, I mean, just the toxicity of his his him being threatened. Um, right. Toxic masculinity is disgusting. So um, Green brought Koi and Kaylee into the house and tucked them into bed. This is fucking sick. Then, as he did when he killed his first wife, he called 911 and waited for the police to come. So now we're going to move on to the investigation and the arrest. What the what, Beth? (laughs) 
Dearborn Heights police received a 911 call at 1.15 a.m. September 21st and went to the home on a, quote, family trouble call possibly involving a gun, unquote. Green was waiting on the front porch when they arrived, similar to his demeanor in 1991. When they arrived, police arrested Green in the driveway. They then went into the home and found Faith in the basement, bound with duct tape and zip ties, suffering from a gunshot wound and slash marks across her face and throat, but still alive. CJ and Kara Allen were found in the basement with multiple gunshot wounds. They were both pronounced dead at the scene. Upstairs in a bedroom, officers found Kaylee and Coy in their beds with no obvious wounds. Officers tried to revive the two young children, and they were taken to Beaumont Hospital in Dearborn, where they were pronounced dead. Faith Green was taken to Oakwood Hospital, where she was listed in fair condition. Michigan State Police evidence technicians processed the evidence at the scene. In the covered driveway where birthday decorations still hung for little Kaylee's fourth birthday, duct tape and tubing was found on the muffler of the Toyota. So now we're going to get into the trial. So Green was arraigned on September 22nd. Very quickly, uh, Wayne County Assistant Prosecutor Tricia Gerard argued against any bond because of the heinousness of the crimes. He faced five potential life sentences, had a previous criminal history, and prosecutors believe their chance of convictions in the case were very strong. I'm going to agree. Now, Green, who did not have any lawyer with him, said in a quiet voice, I don't need bond. The judge denied him bond. Green was ordered to undergo a psychiatric evaluation, but was cleared and declared competent to stand trial. On February 13th, 2017, he accepted a deal with the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office and entered guilty pleas to four counts of second-degree murder, torture, felony firearm, and assault with intent to do great bodily harm. In exchange, charges of first-degree murder were dismissed. I was going to say um, felony firearm, but couldn't he couldn't the car also be a deadly weapon in this case? Uh, yeah, but they don't consider it a weapon. So <laughs> make me the judge. Anyway, according to the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office, quote, the plea was given with the express approval of Faith Green, the mother of the children and the father of the two Allen children, unquote. On February 15th, 2017, when he pleaded guilty to the charges, Green cried as he described what he'd done. Quote, unfortunately, unfortunately, (laughs) stop talking. (laughs) I took the lives of Kaylee, Coy, Chadney and Kara. I shot my ex-wife, unquote. Unfortunately, Unfortunately. it just happened. You know what? It was a mishap. Guys, uh, this one's on me and I'm sorry. Uh, (laughs) It's like he's, it's not like he forgot to turn in his, like his TPS reports. My taxes are late. It's, it's a lot more than unfortunate, sir. So his brief statement was apologetic. I don't think so. But he gave no explanation of the motive behind the crimes. Why did you? What was the reason? Uh, (laughs) Quote, I feel bad for how this has deeply impacted everyone. And may God help them. Help me. Unquote. Uh, God's not. (laughs) God's not involved in this one, sir. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I don't even know what to say. (laughs) I don't either. I'm just 
I'm just killing time because this is very uncomfortable. What's next? Yeah, it is very (laughs) uncomfortable. During the sentencing hearing, Faith Harris Green, 39, said no punishment will be enough for her children's deaths. Quote, you're a con artist. You're a monster. You are a devil in disguise. You are now forever exposed. Not even torture and death would be justice. Your justice will come when you burn in hell for all eternity for murdering four innocent children, all because you're insecure, unquote. Uh, well, that's it. That, I mean, she... Mic drop. She, my, yeah. yeah, bars. That's motherfucking bars right there. Uh, it's, she hit the nail on the head. Uh, yep. Do we even need to do our takeaways or yeah, talk let's, anymore? Let's go. End of the show. <laughs> That's it. Look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. Anyway, before the sentencing was carried out, Green said, quote, it's in God's hands. Only God can judge. I'm sorry this happened. God Whoopsies. knows the heart. Yeah. Uh, he knows how regretful, how sorry I am. Not one day goes by. I don't think of my girls. I pray that God be with Chadney and Kara, unquote. Buck off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Wayne County Court Judge Dana Hathaway told Gregory Green that this case was by far the worst she'd seen as a judge. She said, quote, fathers are supposed to protect their children. Husbands are supposed to protect their wives. Your actions are inconceivable, unquote. I think that's a good word. I mean, if we titled our episodes anything other than what the killer's name was, Inconceivable would be a great title for this episode. Um, So Hathaway said, uh, had she not followed the sentence agreement Green entered into, quote, you would never be released from prison, unquote. Hathaway said she was reluctant to follow the sentence agreement, but stated it would be better for the family so they did not have to relive the horror of the slayings if a trial were held. Yeah, good point. Mm -hmm. The sentence agreement required that Green serve 45 to 100 years in prison for four counts of second degree murder, another two years for felony firearm, which will be served first. So he won't be eligible for parole until he is 97 years old. And hopefully he did before that. Hopefully he did. So now we're going to get into where are they now? Well, Green is currently being held at He's under the jail. Oh, wait, no. (laughs) That's just my imagination, hoping for uh, justice. But uh, so he's being held at Gus Harrison Correctional Facility. And Faith Harris Green was granted a divorce in December 2016. An estimated 1,500 to 1,700 mourners attended the two-hour funeral service at Detroit First Church of the Nazarene in Farmington Hills on September 30th, 2016. Funeral attendees wore pink. It matched the flowers in the siblings' caskets and the teddy bears the family had placed underneath. Friends, family members, and ministers spoke lovingly of the four slain Dearborn Heights siblings. Faith, who was then 39, needed the help of a wheelchair, and she wore a black veil over her face. Just, oh my God. I yeah, can't. so sad. Yeah. Chadney Allen Sr., father of Kara and CJ, said his loss, quote, is going to be hard the rest of my days, unquote. Allen said his children, quote, weren't burdens to society. They were going to be powerful individuals, unquote. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The children were buried at St. Hedgeway Cemetery in Dearborn Heights. When reporters asked Reverend Harris to explain how he felt about it all, he didn't answer. Yeah, I wonder about that as well. He's got to be just guilt, guilt, devastated, devastated. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this was his family, too. Right. And not only did he advocate for this man, but he lost his grandchildren, grandchildren. Yeah. All all of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Faith has short-term memory loss about some details surrounding the slayings. She also suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder, has migraines and nightmares, and she has scars on her face from the ordeal. Faith said there are days when she wishes she'd died and knows the hole in her heart will never heal. Um, yeah, I just, I can't imagine burying my children. It is All such an un, yeah. yeah an unnatural act. You are supposed to outlive your kids, right? Um, or and, your kids are supposed to. Oh, outlive yeah. You. What the fuck are you saying, Wendy? Your kids are supposed to outlive you. Yes, thank you, Beth. Um, <laughs> and so just the idea that it doesn't, it cannot go down that way is yeah uh, inconceivable. Yeah, yeah. Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com So now we're going to get into what uh, we believe made Gregory Green snap, as well as our takeaways. What do you got, Beth? Well, the word of the day, inconceivable. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. The crime is inconceivable to me. Mm -hmm. How someone can murder four innocent children because you're mad at your wife. Right. That's one of the most selfish, disgusting things I've ever heard of. Yeah. This yeah. guy obvious, obviously had zero empathy and was driven by rage to commit his crimes. Yeah. He also wanted to blame the women in his life for his behavior. Like, it wasn't his fault. If they hadn't treated him the way that they did, he wouldn't have had to kill them. Right. Ugh. Yeah. yeah. No, fuck Gross. out of here with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think he probably has a personality disorder and is possibly a psychopath. Oh! You you took the words right out of my mouth. Ding ding ding. We agree. Ding 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 ding. Yeah. <laughs> now how he got that way, it's hard to know because we don't know enough about his early life. Right. He did seem to have a pretty good cover. Yeah. I I think of Dexter, who who of course is a fictional character. Yeah. And it doesn't completely fit, but uh, it demonstrates if you think about Dexter. Uh, how some of these guys operate as wolves in sheep's clothing. Yes. And people seemed to like him. They thought he was a good guy. He convinced friends and family that he'd changed, mm-hmm. even after he stabbed his wife to death. Right. They right. still thought he was a good guy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but he hadn't changed and he wasn't a good guy. Nope. Um, he did behave in prison, but probably because of the structure and the rules that he had to follow. Right. But also if he is a psychopath, um, right. uh, aren't they able to control them, control themselves? Right. And they're not they're just running out here, stabbing, just stabbing, stab, stab. <laughs> it depends on the psychopath. But yeah, um, I'm pretty sure his wives got to see the side of green that other p- people didn't. Right. 
Tanya right. was getting ready to leave him after just two short years of marriage. Mm-hmm. And Faith filed for divorce three times. Mm-hmm. The first time was not long after they got married. So obviously things were not good in their marriage. Right. Um, Green also kind of reminds me of Betty Broderick. Oh, that uh, crazy white lady who killed her. Yeah, she <laughs> oh. killed her ex-husband and his wife and has zero remorse about it. Oh, yes. Yeah. I was I was shocked when I, I listened to her, yeah. her explaining. She still has no remorse. She, yeah. she is completely justified in everything that yeah. she <laughs> did. It's, it's mind-boggling how somebody yeah. can kind of warp the truth to suit them in, yeah. but in such a horrific way i mean these are yeah. murder these people killed betty and uh mr green killed people uh yeah. it, it's yeah, just they, it just i got the feeling that he feels like he he was justified yeah and, I, and killing children yes because oh, he's mad at his wife because he's mad at his wife and um yeah the the whole uh, shooting her in the foot so she can't run away, tying her right. to a chair, slashing her face. He really wanted to punish her. I mean, that yeah. is just uh, killing uh, her children in front of on, her. Yeah, on, that, um, that yeah, unimaginable. Yes, uh, and this, uh, and again, we don't know anything about his childhood, but right. uh, it. Somebody, one of the wives, did say it's he just snapped. It's like I don't know if he's on drugs or what. Um, yeah. And so maybe there was an onset of mental illness that just sort of um, manifested really quickly, um, depending on whatever might have been happening or to him he's in his an life. Asshole, and and he just didn't show he's it. He's just a bad guy. It, yeah. yeah. Until he was married for a while, and he felt comfortable, and then he yeah the asshole came out. Yeah. And so so killing your wife after the threat of being left by her or losing her and just this territorialism this is my woman this is my wife this is mine 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 this toxic masculinity bullshit um and just uh he just went above and beyond as far when it comes to um punishing his second wife yeah uh i'm just baffled by his capacity to seem like a loving husband or human for a period of several years at least to the outside world right yeah to the outside world. um and that pastor who went to bat for him i feel so bad for him too um yeah. and he thought he was doing the right thing yeah and his, his his so he goes in this really intense rage um with the with the the stabbing mcstabbersons and um putting the knife in the refrigerator and then um uh, killing those four kids slashing his wife's face and shooting her in the foot and then calling 911 all calmly just chilling in the front yep. of the house what yep. the actual fuck is going yeah. on um <laughs> Um, and I don't know, but I never want to meet this guy. I, I yeah, I don't either. Isn't that that is the most terrifying aspect of it? Is yeah. he it, it did not seemed seem normal, like anything was wrong, like right? a good guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he had everybody uh, fooled. Yeah. He really did. He really did. Inconceivable. And what's a word when you have everybody fooled? Is there a word for that? Uh, yeah, but I can't think of it right. I now. can't think of it either. Anyway. <laughs> When you get at us and we'll give you a prize. Just kidding. No, we won't. That's it for this story, y'all. This one is a wild yeah. one. Thank you yeah. for um, our very foodies. Sad. Yes, very, very sad um, for the, the lives lost and um, everybody who would be who, who's left in, in the wake of Gregory Green. Um, so now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. Ooh. <laughs> 
This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Okay, so I I was just coming at this one from, look, it's 2020, y'all. The the year is about to end. We are all spent. So let's talk about how not to murder our spirits. Some okay. self-care tips for our fruities to make sliding into 2022 smooth as butter. Uh, so here's what I say. Eat that extra helping. Block that phone call. Don't turn up. Don't answer that phone. Turn up that annoying ass song and shout it to the heavens. Spend 90 <laughs> minutes on TikTok. Watch a funny ass show. Uh, work got you down. You know what I do when I'm at work and I don't want to be there? I run to the bathroom and I twerk a little bit. I shake my ass for a few <laughs> minutes before I come out. Take that hot bath. Drink that tea. Smoke that joint. Hit the snooze button. <laughs> take that nap and breathe, y'all. We're Ooh. almost there, and 2022 there. is yep. going to be a glorious year. Uh, we hope. Don't say it. We don't hope, say we it. Hope, we hope. <laughs> Jinx us. <laughs> Do you have anything, any self-care, how not to murder them spirits? Uh, no, I think you covered it pretty good. <laughs> okay. <Yeah>. All right. <laughs> now it's shout-out time, where we shout-out any content by or about any other marginalized groups of folks or any true crime goodies. Um, this one is uh, content about other uh, marginalized groups. It's called Encanto on Disney+. Plus. It's in theaters it's, right it's now. It's on there now? Comes is out on, on Friday. By the time Friday, this comes okay. out, by the time this comes out, out, it will okay, be available cool, cool, cool. on Disney Plus. It is about a Colombian girl, um, and uh, she may be the last hope for her family when she discovers that the magic surrounding Encanto, an enchanted place that uh, blesses children with unique gifts, is now in danger. But the animation is gorgeous, uh, and we know that Latinx folks can come in all kinds of colors: black, brown, indigenous, even white. And this movie is a pretty pretty diverse in terms of its representation of the various ethnic groups and cultures that exist within Colombia, including uh, the music. Um, and guess who did it? Lin-Manuel Miranda. So yeah. we know it's going to be good. What yeah, you- <laughs> I've, been, I've been excited to see this one. I, I uh, wanted to see it with my grandson. I thought it was going to be on Disney Plus at the same time it came out um, in theaters and yeah. then it didn't. Yeah, yeah. My, my son was, I was just too tired. The, the weekend it came out and he was so he was crying he was in tears because he wanted to see it so bad yeah so there's still hope we could stream it soon but (laughs) (laughs) what do you got i wanted to shout out bad women the ripper retold podcast Ooh, yeah i totally binged it (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) yeah it's fascinating do we know who did Um, it yet no it's not about that Oh, historian Hallie Rubenhold uncovers new facts about the five victims of Jack the Ripper. Oh, what their lives were like and the appalling treatment they faced as women in the 1800s. So it's not about Jack the Ripper. It's about the victims. Hell yes. Bad women. It's a podcast. Yep. Oh, I'm on it. Okay, y'all. So that's Bad Women, the the Ripper Retold podcast and Encanto. Available to stream on Disney+. Plus. Well, this has been fun, but that's it for today and for a while because we're taking a break. Uh, (laughs) But in the meantime, Beth, where can the people find us? 
Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod. And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App. Or you can become a monthly patron through Podbean. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. Correct. Now, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. detective came and knocked on the door and I said is it Renee and he just gave me that solemn look it was the worst day ever the proof podcast is back with a new case and a new season 23 years ago 18 year old Renee Ramos went missing her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town I don't think that they arrested the right people it's about time somebody's trying to do something she had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered they are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks' lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con.